It's Wednesday, January 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots is upon us, and members of Congress are still investigating all that went down on that day. But how has some of the extremism that took place shifted a year later? Much of it has moved to the local level. The shift has gone to local politics, school boards, and county health boards. Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News, joins us for how this shift to a local level has a purpose. Next, looking back at 2021, we saw a big drop in engagement with news content. 2020 was a huge year with Trump still in office and the onset of the pandemic, and people were tuned in all the time. But a year later, as COVID fatigue set in, people diverted their attention elsewhere, like streaming content and sports. Neil Rothschild, director of audience and growth at Axios, joins us for how many tuned out in 2021. Finally, Omicron has definitely thrown a wrench into back-to-school plans for students, as many districts shifted last minute to remote learning after the holiday break. For parents, the constant changes have left them frustrated, trying to adjust to evolving plans and confused on what to do. The students aren't faring better either. Maggie Astor, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We could hear this noise, this sound of a crowd. If they had had their way, we would not have certified that election. The insurrection would have succeeded. Joining us now is Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, we are upon the one-year anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots. Obviously, it was a, a bit harrowing time for what happened that day. And really, the entire year, uh, everybody's been trying to explore what's happening. We have the committees in Congress investigating it, just trying to see how everything unfolded. Obviously, things that happened with the Capitol Police. It was a big moment of introspection. We all had to look back and see what caused all of this. One of the big parts, obviously, were these uh, extremist groups that participated in all of it, that stormed the Capitol, that broke down the doors and, and were inside of the building. And you wrote an article talking about how a lot of this extremism after that happened shifted into the local level. It shifted into local communities, you know, school board meetings, things like that, uh, trying to affect that bigger change that they were hoping for at these smaller levels. So, Ben, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with this. Yeah. So in the weeks and months after January 6th, a lot of these extremists have been on the run, you know, on the lam, basically, because the feds were after them. The FBI posted pictures of their faces on the Internet. They were seeing jail time, as you can see now. And President Trump, he is hosting this rally at Mar-a-Lago on January 6th, saying that he needs justice for all these people from January 6th. These people were genuinely and sincerely afraid of getting caught. So they laid low. They went back down and they organize locally. And that's what you're seeing in the last few months. People like Steve Bannon have said, we need to go village by village. And Mike Flynn said, you have to take over your school boards and take back your communities. And that's what we've seen. Uh, These groups that are tied with the Proud Boys or just the Proud Boys themselves are going to local school board meetings. They're going to health boards and they're intimidating members until they get the votes they think are correct. Yeah. And and we saw that play out, right? In a bunch of different ways. Maybe you didn't know at the time that Some of the people could have been part of these groups, but we've all seen stories about these really contentious school board meetings, for example, right? 
battling the mask mandates or vaccine mandates and things are just going out of control and people are shaking their heads saying, you know, what's going on? But this is part of that. This is part of that effect where they're just trying to fight any you know, governmental action, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I talked to this woman named Denise Aguilar who runs a group called Mom Militia and Freedom Angels, another group there. And I talked to her in Stockton, California, where she was outside of a Board of Education meeting. And she was at the Capitol on January 6th. She talked about how we stormed the Capitol on January 6th in Instagram posts that she deleted because she was also one of those people who sort of tried to distance herself from it. But she was outside of this Board of Education meeting talking about my body, my choice, about how the vaccine mandates for children in California shouldn't exist. And inside, they sided with her. The vote went in her direction, even though she didn't even have children in that school district. But she was able to organize through Telegram and through local groups this outcome that she really wanted, even though, you know, she was part of this this large group that was outside of the Capitol on January 6th. As you mentioned, a lot of these groups, there was a lot of big national rallies, things like that beforehand, too. And all of that kind of calmed down after January 6th because a lot of people were being named and whatnot. So they went to the local level. They also did retreat back to the Internet and a lot of these Internet groups that they have and, and organizing that way continued. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of these people were banned from Facebook and Twitter because of their bans on extremism in general, especially around January 6th. They really started to take seriously their bans of, say, QAnon accounts on places like Twitter. So those people reorganized in different parts of the Internet. Now, a big thing in the far right is to create a parallel Internet with different services that won't ban you no matter what. And that's what they've done in the last year. They went to services like Getter, which was created by Jason Miller, a former Trump aide. They went to Gab and they went to Telegram. And that's where they all live now. They live in a different section of the Internet than most civilian parts of the Internet. But it's working as a communications infrastructure. It works for them to get people the messages that they need to organize in real life. And while they may not be confronting people on the internet constantly in your spaces and you know traditional spaces on Twitter or Facebook on the civilian internet, they are organizing so they can be in civilian spaces in real life. And that's what's working for these people right now. Yeah, they'll spread some misinformation. I think uh, in the article you pointed to an example where they said some kid was going to get arrested for refusing to wear a mask or something. And obviously that was false, but it kind of trickled out and people started seeing it and, and the misinformation grows and it you know stirs up these groups again to go down again to reinforce the whole point, go down to the local level, go down to the school board meetings and, and, and local elections and kind of make us think about those things. That's the problem with these alternative, I would say, social media communities. Regular people are not on there saying, hey, this isn't true. This isn't actually happening. Of, of course, this isn't true. This is from a fake news website. This is a meme. Nobody is confronting these people or, or even reality doesn't seep into those spaces. So they live in an echo chamber over there where they just continually get more and more riled up over the course of the year. So while the information is wrong and not good, it doesn't matter to them because they, you know, they have an entirely different set of experts, an entirely different set of rules in these spaces. The spaces are much smaller than the Facebook groups that grew organically and algorithmically because Facebook is such a powerful tool. But the places are also a lot more delusional than they were in the years past. Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's not so much that 2021 was 
a particularly boring year is just that it was in comparison to 2020, which was an absolutely insane year. When you think about, as you mentioned, Trump is in office, you have the onset of the pandemic, you have George Floyd and the racial reckoning protests. Joining us now is Neil Rothschild, Director of Audience and Growth at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Neil. Thanks so much for having me on, Oscar. Wanted to take a look into uh, an interesting thing you wrote about, about news engagement from this past year and how a lot of people were tuning out compared to 2020. Obviously, 2020, we still had President Trump in office, uh, a lot of attention being spent on him. Obviously, coronavirus started. You know, we were going through lockdowns. People were tuned in extra. They needed to know what was happening. But this past year, people just started getting over it. They started getting tired of it. They didn't want to hear to uh, tune in so much anymore. And so, I, as I mentioned, we saw this news engagement fall off. So tell us a little bit about it, Neil. Yeah, so uh, it's not so much that 2021 was a particularly boring year. It's just that it was in comparison to 2020, which was an absolutely insane year. When you think about, as you mentioned, Trump is in office, you have the onset of the pandemic, you have George Floyd and the racial reckoning protests, and then you have an election in November. So there's just this perfect storm of insane news events that kind of pretty much for the whole year, people were paying attention at a level that is not normal and is way outside of probably what is healthy in someone's media diet. And so what you saw in 2021 was kind of a big come down from that. Data shows that the Omicron variant isn't really jumpstarting people's news engagement again. You know, we've talked a lot about COVID fatigue. Obviously, people are paying attention to to things of sorts, but uh, Omicron itself hasn't really ignited that. No, and it, it almost kind of feels maybe people perceive it a bit like we've seen this before. We've been there before where, you know, another wave is coming and cases are up and we've kind of gathered that it's not going to disrupt our life in any huge way. And certainly when you compare it to kind of disruption and how much it changed our life in spring of 2020. And, you know, I, you're saying I can't go out to eat anymore and I'm not going into work. And what do I have to like wear masks, gloves, all that? Like You have nothing like that where it's like, literally changing how you function kind of when you when we've kind of uh, been in the 2021 phases of the pandemic. Walk us through some numbers, if you could, please. Uh, Things with uh, broadcast viewership, uh, downloading uh, apps, uh, you know, that have to do with news, social media, all that. Tell us what we're seeing with those. Yeah, so there's just kind of a few measures of like, well, what does it mean to be consuming the news? Uh, A few different ways people get news on social media and do they react to news stories that they see in their feeds, either by commenting or sharing or liking, those interactions are down 65%. So that's actually, the number is almost strength by three from where it was in 2020. Another measure is kind of prime time viewership on cable news. So like kind of the biggest names, whether it's Sean Hannity on Fox, Anderson Cooper on CNN, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. And so uh, kind of viewership of those primetime programs is down 36% 36% news app downloads, so how easy it is for people to find news on their phone, that's down 33%. And then kind of visits to news websites, that's actually down, but not by as much as some of those other measures, that's 8%. So uh, as you mentioned, there are, you know, just because there's a decline of news, it's just kind of shifting the type of news people are getting. So there's been more you know, people are more into sports than they were last year and kind of more kind of localized, staggered issues rather than everyone paying attention to all of just the same few stories.
are we expecting for this to continue in the new year? Or you made mention that there are going to be a few landmark events like the Winter Olympics. The midterm elections are going to happen later on. So there'll be more news engagement there. But are, are we expecting to see these declines continue? Yeah, I think all signs point to a similar 2022 as 2021. I don't see it being particularly lower. Maybe it could be a bit higher, but uh, obviously unexpected news will always kind of cause the biggest shifts and uh, could cause kind of people to need to pay attention. But as far as like what we can prepare for and what we can plan for, we have the Winter Olympics in Beijing, but you know, probably not as big as the Summer Olympics, which we had last year. Uh, we do have the midterm elections coming up in November. That is obviously very big in the political world. But we also had an inauguration and a riot on the Capitol last year in January. So those are kind of two events that have a lot of weight. And so, you know, there's not a lot that we can expect in 2022 that will make us say, like, oh, wow, this is going to be a much bigger year than we had in 2021. Neil Rothschild, Director of Audience and Growth at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Schools need to really weigh what they can do, whether it's testing to stay, staggering classrooms, mandating vaccines, all of it. We just have to all get on the same page and do what we can to protect our kids and give them that option of going back into school. But parents should be prepared for the fact that there might be a delay, especially in places where cases are surging. Joining us now is Maggie Astor, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Wanted to check in on what's going on with schools right now. We've been talking a lot about schools recently, uh, you know, an uptick in violence and uh, how to deal with these disciplinary actions need to be taken. But beyond that, even just getting back to school has been a big problem. Uh, a lot of plans were in place for returning to school after the holiday break. A lot of them got changed last minute. Some of the big school districts like in New York, they're still going to in-person classes, but a lot of other school districts around the country have responded to what's going on with the Omicron variant and how transmissible it is and have gone back to remote learning for maybe a few days, a week or so. Everything's changed. So there at the New York Times, you guys wanted to talk to parents to see how they were dealing with all of this. And, you know, just the way you put in the article, it, a lot of it boils down to not too well. And, and you heard mostly from mothers. So, Maggie, tell us what's going on with this. Really, we have a big mishmash of different policies at schools across the country, oftentimes even within the same family. If you have children of different ages at different schools, you might have one child whose school is in person, one child whose school is remote, you know, one child whose school is doing a hybrid arrangement where you can choose or they're remote part of the week and not the other. So just keeping up with what the policies are can be very difficult and stressful for parents. And then, of course, the stress of dealing with these changes at the last minute. Parents who work and don't have easy access to childcare suddenly having their children be home when they fully expected them to be in person, you know, or parents who are having to make tough decisions with kids who might have underlying health conditions, um, who might be high risk or have high risk family members and their school is in person and the parents are agonizing over, well, do I send them in? There's no remote option. Should I just keep them out of school entirely for a week? What do I do? And it's just a situation where in most cases, there 
aren't any ideal answers and parents are having to figure out what to do among, you know, they have to figure out what the least worst option is. And they've been doing that for two years and they're exhausted. You know, when it comes to procedures to be safe, masking, all that stuff, many parents didn't trust other members of their communities to take these precautions. And that adds to that frustration. Uh, You know, you can send your kid to school with a mask and tell them to be safe, but you don't trust that other people are doing that same thing with their kids. I think that's sort of a microcosm of what we've been seeing in many areas throughout the pandemic with a lot of bitterness and resentment where people think, you know, I'm doing everything right. And other people, people who aren't wearing masks, people who aren't getting vaccinated, this anger at people who aren't doing enough when you're doing so much. That is definitely present here. There was uh, one woman who's, quote, stuck with me, a, uh, a New Yorker. She has a five-year-old daughter. Her daughter's school is operating in person, as, as public schools in New York City are. And she had to decide whether to send her daughter in. And she ultimately did. But she's terrified because the family lost a grandmother and almost a grandfather, too, to COVID in April 2020. So they've seen very personally how the disease can strike. And she said to me, quote, that's the hardest part for me, knowing how badly it can go, how mysteriously this virus can affect people and feeling like I have to send her out to take her chances with it. Yeah, that, that's got to be one of the most confusing parts of it, too, because you know, not everybody has been touched by the virus in the same way, obviously. And when you talk about that, right, this that mother had uh, somebody in their family get severely ill and pass and all that. But, you know, by and large, kids don't get affected in the same way. I know a lot of them have some underlying health conditions, but uh, it doesn't affect kids the same way. So a lot of people make that argument saying, you know, it's the safest place for kids to be in school. This is just to illustrate how difficult the conversation is and how frustrated, to your point in this article, right, how frustrated parents are with so many changing guidelines. Yeah, and absolutely. And certainly the evidence is clear that the risk to children is on average, much lower. But of course, parents are looking at this and even if their child doesn't have underlying conditions, they're looking at this and saying, well, much lower risk doesn't mean low risk. And, you know, how much am I willing to tolerate? How does Omicron change the calculus? Because there has been somewhat of an increase in pediatric hospitalizations lately, even though the odds are still much lower than for older people. And there's just a lot of uncertainty. People feel like maybe once they sort of had a grip on what the risk calculus was and now Omicron's changing it, or they understand that in their personal circumstances, the risk is very low, but they've seen so much death and so much horror around them for so long that it's just really difficult to believe that it's safe. And really, the uncertainty is what a lot of them expressed most of all, whether they were scared of sending their kids to school or whether they really wanted to send their kids to school and they were angry that the school was going remote when they felt it wasn't justified. There's just none of them were happy, regardless <laughs> yeah. of what their school was right. doing, because there are no good situations here. Maggie Astor, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.